Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What are angels? What are we on? Okay, yes, sorry. Yes, we're on. What are angels? <laughs> do they do what folklore tells us they do? Does each of us have a guardian angel? Hey there, and welcome to the 417th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those diverse questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we introduce our guest, it's time for a weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, in what town in New Jersey was a Bigfoot sighting reported in November 2010? Well, Andy Fantoni of right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, was the first to answer that one correctly, Medford, New Jersey, in November 2010. At 7 a.m. that wonderful day, two people from Pennsylvania were driving along uh, in the vicinity, and they saw the uh, dear, old, uh, dear old Sasquatch, I guess, within 50 yards of them, they said, in the woods near a housing development. Now, New Jersey is the most densely populated state, so that's kind of an odd occurrence, but Bigfoot sightings have been reported there. And Governor Chris Christie does not count. No. So this week's question... Oh, dear. Uh, I'll take that back. That was, <laughs> that was kind of a low blow. Oh, I'm very sorry, Chris Christie, if you're listening. Yeah, I'm so sure this week's yeah, well, you never know who listens. So uh, this week, uh, this week's question is: In what town in Maine would you find the old rocking chair that seems to create hauntings uh, whenever it is turned upside down? So get that right and win a copy of "Do You Have a Guardian Angel?" by tonight's guest. John Rahner published his first magazine article at the age of 15. As a longtime newspaper reporter, John won awards from the Associated Press and other news organizations. Since the mid-1980s, he has spoken with hundreds of people about their experiences with angels. He has discussed his findings in interviews with the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and other publications, and in appearances on national programs, including The Phil Donahue Show, The Learning Channel, Sightings, and NBC special Angels 2. He has 140,000-plus books in print. His work is available in four languages. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Do you have a website? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, angelwatchingme.com. Angelwatchingme.com. Somehow we didn't pick that up. <laughs> but we'll uh, give you a chance to promote that later. Uh, we do Thanks. welcome callers this evening. Uh, locally, it's 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the USA. All right, so John Rahner, welcome, uh, an official welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a fun show. So let's start off with a really simple question, but it may not have a simple answer. Uh, what is an angel, or what are angels? Well, uh, that's a loaded question. That's always a good one to ask, uh, because it, uh, the word angel means a lot of things to different people, depending on what kind of experiences they've had. There is a there's a strict definition that comes down from uh, medieval philosophy. The, uh, the medieval... Um, uh, philosophers in Christian Europe considered an angel to be a uh, superior spiritual being, not a human being, but a completely different species, you might say, uh, created at the, at, the dawn of, uh, uh, at the dawn of time, uh, before the rest of creation, and uh, above us on the, I guess you could say the evolutionary scale, although evolution wasn't even a concept then, so I guess you could say they considered them above us. Uh, uh, and more powerful in terms of intellect and more powerful in terms of spiritual power, but not having certain attributes that we have, such as free will. 
that was a that was a classic angel uh, and a non-human entity too in spirit form, never never uh, in flesh, except in uh, uh, some cases where supposedly they take on human form in order to intervene temporarily. So that's a strict definition, but uh, the term is very loosely used. Uh, some people, when they when they feel they they have a guardian angel, there uh, they have the idea of the classic being that I just described. But others, when they use the term angel, there uh, you find out pretty quickly they're talking about departed loved ones uh, that they uh, think or believe continue to look after them from beyond the grave. And uh, sometimes that contact is fleeting just for a moment, and sometimes it can it lasts a few months, sometimes almost an entire lifetime. Uh, different interventions. So uh, the first thing you got to do when somebody says they have an angel is ask a few more questions to try to figure out what's happening. Interesting. That's funny. Your the original description, the, the one you uh, mentioned as being associated with medieval Europe, was uh, what we learned from the good nuns. <laughs> but oh, sure. In, yeah, but yeah. in ten years in the seminary, I the, I don't think the subject really ever came up very much. Well, not in class, anyway. It was no. bizarre no. to me. Well, when I was, I'm 61. When I was a young, young fellow, about in my 20s, in the 60s and 70s, I was keen in the in the 60s, in my early 20s and 70s. By that, you know, um, those of us who are old enough, we can remember what a harshly materialistic age. Uh, philosophically speaking, I'm not talking about keeping up with the Joneses when I say materialism. I'm talking about the philosophical belief that the physical is all there is. Exactly. That the yeah. universe is a big ax, big mechanical accident, that uh, everything has a quote-unquote logical explanation, and on and on and on. We've heard it all a million times. The young, young adults have not been exposed to that to such a degree, but angels were very much out of favor in the 60s and 70s, uh, uh, really to the point of ridicule. Uh, when I researched my first book as, as late as, as late as 1983, uh, there was already some change in effect, but I was shocked at how, how little there was out there when I was doing the research. It's extremely difficult to get a, uh, to get a book on the subject that was not just either a religious tract or dismissive of the subject. And, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, you, well, you and I are roughly the same vintage, I think, and uh, yeah, I, I do yeah. remember those. But then, of course, in the 80s, when uh, I was also doing paranormal work, uh, angels yeah. came back into favor. Oh, they did. And things things began changing uh, all, all along a continuum. Uh, uh, I think the first big break that I remember was in the early 70s when Raymond Moody uh, came up with his classic Life After Life, chronicling the near-death experiences. Moody was not trying to be a scientist about it. He was just collecting anecdotes and trying to categorize them. And, and I think his contribution was that he demonstrated that the phenomenon was widespread and that it fit into categories and that people uh, from different walks of life and, and viewpoints and and religions and philosophies were having essentially the same experience with at a time when there was no cultural contamination in other words uh, most people had never even heard of the near-death experience at that time even though it's been around for thousands of years so uh, it wasn't like they were influenced by tv shows or anything so anyway that created quite a storm in 1972 i was a, a young reporter uh, working for a small daily in northwest georgia and as a matter of fact uh, uh, I called Moody up, and he was gracious enough to return my call. We had a nice little interview, which appeared in the paper, I think, circa 75 or so. Mm. But uh, the, things marched along, and, and I think interest in the paranormal and acceptance of the paranormal has been steadily picking up steam. Uh, and, and I think there's a reason for it, too. I don't think it's just accident or a change of fashion or whatever. There, I've, you know, In my opinion, there should be a logical reason why materialism, which reigns supreme, 
has suddenly uh, been to to a certain extent abandoned by the intellectual elite in the Western world. And I think one of the reasons, my my pet theory, is that it comes from quantum physics. The idea that the that the that that branch of physics that deals with dimensions smaller than the atom, uh, subatomic particles, and so on. Quantum physics has demonstrated to the scientists themselves that there is nothing down there that uh, our our illusion of reality, what the Hindus call Maya, just completely disappears at the subatomic level. That those protons, neutrons, and electrons—they're not real tiny BBs out there just floating around that we could touch if we could just see them. They, in a sense, have no existence unless our minds or our consciousness is focused on them. In a in a, in a very real sense, uh, consciousness creates reality down there at that level. And of course, that's the foundation of the whole physical universe. That's 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 our foundation. We, we, are, we are composed of subatomic particles. So I think this has had a profound effect on, uh, on the, the intellectual movers and the shakers. And I think that's one reason why, when I was young, uh, you had leadership provided, say, by uh, Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov, two men that I uh, deeply respect and uh, admire. However, they were materialists. And anyone who's ever watched Carl Sagan's movie Contact can see that the, uh, the dreary... Uh, materialist philosophy just permeating the whole movie. It's a fantastic movie and an excellent book. And he did a great job on it, but he had that kind of existentialist uh, take on reality that really it's all meaningless, there's no purpose, uh, why are we here, we just have to create meaning for ourselves, that sort of thing. There was a famous scene in that movie where Jodie Foster's character confronted the alien, and the alien said, there's nobody there but us to comfort ourselves. And yeah. that was Sagan talking. That was the existentialist Sagan talking Absolutely. through his lips. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, you've come to the right show, John, because we uh, we base all our work on quantum mechanics. And, uh, That's good. Because when yeah. I was in the, in the seminary in, in the, um, well, even in the early 1970s, I, and the reason I, I was never ordained was because they didn't like my paranormal work, and out, out I went <laughs> uh, in 1977. And, uh, but, you know, not, not before I sort of begin become to become very suspicious of the, the <laughs> classical interpretation of the paranormal, yeah. whether it be yeah. angels or ghosts or you ever or what have you. Right. And uh, in, in, resu- in ensuing years, I, I encountered quantum mechanics, and I said, you know, and I, I actually sought out physicists, and I said, you know, I'm seeing what you're talking about in the classroom on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis in the trenches, as it were, in so-called yeah. haunted houses and things like this. Yeah. And some of them accepted them, some of them didn't. But we're getting a little off topic. Ben has another question, but we'll we'll, we'll stay on that thing. Yeah, so we, we were talking, you mentioned that um, like the different cultures have their different interpretations of angels, but they're pretty much the same thing all across the board. And so that kind of answers this question, how are they perceived in various cultures? But would you like to expound a little bit more on that? Well, yeah, um, in, in the Western culture, we... Uh we have uh, the the kind of angel I described at the beginning of the program. Um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, they've been traditionally thought of as like divine courtiers, you know, surrounding the the throne. And yeah, sort of angelos means, yeah. That, yeah, exactly, messenger, right? And God has been personified as a uh, uh, kind of a king. So that's pretty much, uh, you know, the medievals imagined God and the angels in the same way as the it, it, kind of like a a Western. A Western monarch and his and his uh, courtiers, and the the angels were dispatched just like courtiers were sent on special missions, and that's pretty much the way they saw them. Uh, and you have uh, 
the, the angel is a superior non-human being uh, created separately and not really uh, having any connection with humanity other than the interactions that we have. Uh, that's pretty much a Western idea. And you have that type of angel in Judaism. You have it in Christianity. You have it in Islam. And, uh, of course, that's not, not, not any surprise because the Christian and Muslim angels were built on a Jewish foundation. And then the Islam came along in the 600s A.D. and built itself to a, to a certain extent on the Judaism and the Christianity that had preceded it. So all those angels in, in the religions of the book are pretty much the same. Hmm. Uh, the you book. have, I mean, obviously they've got different roles because the, the Christian and Jewish devil just corresponds very roughly to the Muslim Iblis, but it's a completely different kind of situation there. Iblis is more, uh, uh, he's not hes not actually mounting a rebellion against God, he was just cast out. You hmm. know, uh, he, he lost favor with the Almighty, uh, with Allah. As you move east, though, you start seeing some differences there. Um, uh, in, in Buddhism and, and Hinduism, well, in Buddhism in particular, you have the uh, Bodhisattvas, which are the, uh, a rough approximation of Western angels. These, are, however, are, are mortals who have uh, uh, shaken off the uh, wheel, of, uh, broken the wheel of karma because they've, they've, uh, they've attained enough religious merit that they don't have to reincarnate. It's not forced, reincarnation is not forced on them because they're souls have been purified to the extent that they don't have to come back for more lessons but uh, they voluntarily some of them voluntarily choose to do so and and, and become uh, like uh, guardian angels coming back to help and comfort and raise the consciousness of those of the, the more benighted who are left behind and in and in some cases even going down to one of the various Buddhist hells to uh, you know counsel and, and be with the, the suffering uh, so you and of course in Taoism you have the immortals uh, uh, there's a every culture uh, in, in, in around the planet and going all the way back through history has had some kind of conception of, uh, of spiritual beings that watch over them. Uh, and the archaeologists have dug in ancient Sumer, uh, one of the world's first civilizations, along with Egypt. Uh, it grew up along the Tigris and Euphrates River, circa 3000 BC, and the Sumerians invented the wheel and 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 uh, writing, etc. Uh, they have found, archaeologists have found in ancient Sumerian homes uh, uh, votive uh, altars for uh, household guardian spirits. Uh, and so it's, it's something that's been in human consciousness at least as far back as we've got records. Sure. Alrighty. So, at least as we see it, there can be uh, striking similarities between people's experiences of angels, fairies, space aliens, spirit guides, uh, gods, and countless other examples. It is, it, or is it possible that these are the same phenomena, just different cultural perceptions? Well, I think, uh, I think the same things are happening to human beings all over the, all over the planet and have been for thousands of years. I mean, take the being of light and near-death experience, for example. It goes by many different names. Uh, you know, in the near-death experience, of course, most of us are familiar with it by now. You have an out-of-body experience initially, uh, and a separation from the body. And for a while, for a short while, if it's a complete experience, uh, the, the dying person sees his physical surroundings around him. And then eventually, that all that, he goes, journeys through a, a dark tunnel, which represents a transitional phase, uh, as, uh, to a, to a world of light. And there, um, uh, you know, the, 
the person who was dying uh, visits uh, departed loved ones who have preceded him in death usually. And this extraordinary being of light that is very much like uh, a conception of an angel, it's, uh, it's clearly not human. It's not a, not a dead person or a dead relative like the others. It's much brighter than the others. It's much wiser than the others and has an overwhelming uh, spiritual power and, and love about it that the others don't have. So it's, a, it's like a flame that burns far more brightly than the embers around it. And uh, uh, the description of that angel can vary according to the religious background of the person or if there is no religious background. A secular person might just call it a being of light. You know, uh, uh, a Christian might think that it was Jesus and very fact often has been called Jesus. Uh, uh, a Jew might just call it an angel uh, and so on. Uh, but they're clearly talking about the same type of entity. And uh, uh, it's a, it appears to be a superior spiritual being. Uh, and often will spend time interacting with the with the dying individual, and uh, uh, will will often show the dying individual what's called a life review of every tiny action in that person's existence on Earth uh, uh, up to the present moment. And in that life review, the experiencer sees uh, not only what's going on in complete detail, uh, but but and not only recalls in every detail what was going on in in his or her mind and heart at the time but also has the ability to see into the minds and the hearts of those around him or her uh, to gauge the reaction to that to the kind of behavior that that person has been leading. And so obviously life review can be a very uh, uh, life-changing experience for the perceiver because for the first time you can see how your actions benefited or hurt or had a neutral effect on everyone around you. And furthermore, you can see the ripple effect moving on to others. So... Um, uh, uh, that alone is a is a pretty striking component of near death experience. But to get back to the uh, get back to the being of light, uh, the being of light goes by many different names, but obviously they're talking about the same type of entity. So um, uh, I I do think that uh, human beings, by their nature, have the same types of experience in every culture. Although we've got different ways, there different cultures will emphasize different types of experiences. But we're all we're all uh, going through the same thing, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, that's probably the best way you can put it. Yeah, so now we're going to go into different types of angels, I, I suppose, and like talk about eh, what a guardian angel is, and does everybody have one, and yeah. why? Like, my girlfriend's a devout Catholic, and she makes, like, jokes. Like, she has, she's like, oh, yeah, I have a parking angel. Where, like, yeah. I need one in Boston. Yeah, like, we were going to, like, the train station, and she was just like, all right, I'm going to pray to the parking angels so that we get a good parking spot. And we did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, what you... What you focus your consciousness on, I mean, it's an age-old metaphysical principle as, as old as the hills. What you focus your consciousness on expands in your life, and what you withdraw your consciousness uh, from with, uh, withers and, and uh, diminishes. I mean, uh, for example, in lucid dreaming, uh, one of the techniques of lucid dreaming is simply start paying attention to your dreams if you want to have one. You, and keep a dream diary and, and uh, focus on, on having one during the day and uh, constantly asking yourself, is this a dream, and so on. So um, uh, I've done the parking angel routine myself with favorable results. Uh, well, you'll never prove it to the skeptics, but uh, uh, but uh, I've had some pretty astounding results. I think that's where, you know, it's a matter of focusing your attention on something. Um, so uh, well, uh, as I, far, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, know, I know what you mean, uh, John. Uh, I have often told the story of my own experience while in the military. We were... 
uh, insane enough to be doing uh, airdrops over the St. Elias Mountains in the Yukon in uh, the winter. And, oh. and uh, we were, um, I, I'm not going to tell you what the wind chill factor was. You'd think oh. I was crazy. But uh, we were off on doing um, recon, recon exercises, and this snow ridge collapsed on top of me. I was under eight feet of snow, and, I, and uh, they were radio. You know, we get help, and I, I uh, kind of knew I was going to die. But then I, my right hand, you know, because obviously very, very heavily gloved, warmed up, and I felt something pulled me effortlessly up through eight feet of snow. And the, the next thing the guys knew, I, there I was, you know, popping out of this snowbank. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, so, you know, nobody's going to tell me there isn't some sort of help or guardian oh, yeah. or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and so, um, I've always, um, been grateful for that. So I talked to a man overboard. Uh, he was, uh, he was actually the, the skipper of a private yacht there. And there's only one other guy on the boat with him. And, uh, somehow or other, uh, it hit a wave or something and he didn't have his life jacket on. And, uh, uh, he got tossed off the boat and, you know, he's flailing, flailing out there in the water while the boat's just leaving him in the middle of the ocean. They're not even close to the beach. No. Uh, and, uh, uh, pretty soon the boat disappears over the horizon and it's, and then he can't even hear the engine anymore. So it's, uh, somehow or other he kept his wits about him and, and kept dog paddling and, uh, um, but, uh, about, uh, the, uh, the, the young guy that was piloting the boat for him, obviously realized at a certain point he was gone. I, I think they had gone, I think he'd gone eight miles before he realized it. Oh. And, of course, he, uh, the, the poor fellow was just uh, distraught over what had happened. And But he had, the, he had the presence of mind to remember how to make a Williamson turn, which is apparently something they teach you in, in uh, sailing. Uh, it's, uh, it's the ability to, you, you follow a, a sequence of procedures to, to uh, turn your, your vessel around exactly back in the direction it came from a perfect 180 degree turn mm -hmm. and he apparently executed all that flawlessly and started back uh it took him about 45 minutes uh to get back to where he was and of course at that time the guy was almost gone it was uh you know they say many many people who are overboard and are rescued uh die at the last minute uh, for some reason they just give up lose their strength and and the same thing was about to happen to this individual he finally just started sinking just as the boat was approaching him but he uh uh he felt uh as he was sinking he felt hands grab him and brace him in various parts of his body and start propelling him toward the boat because he didn't have any strength left to swim there mm -hmm. and uh uh they even the hand these invisible hands even helped him because he was so too weak to even put his put his uh put his leg on the steps to get up the side of the boat so they assisted him there and and literally shoved him up and at that point he got hauled on the boat and he was unconscious for a couple of days when he came to in the hospital to bed he uh thanked the young fellow so much for helping him but of course as you can probably anticipate the guy said he'd never left the boat that somehow or other he'd made it to the boat but he's convinced like that that experience is very similar to what you described and yeah. uh it represents a, it represents a distinct category of angel intervention stories where you know unseen helpers are providing uh, physical assistance 
to somebody who needs it to get out of a, a scrape or a jam there. And there are a lot of other different types of experiences. Oh, uh, we hear those, all yeah. kinds of things all the time. Yeah, naturally, people write in and tell us things like this. But this brings up rather an interesting point. Now, we do have to take a uh, commercial break in a minute, but yeah. uh, I'll give you something sort of to think about. Our quantum mechanics runs uh, in the practical sense to the multiple worlds interpretation which is in, is interpreted in many yeah. ways and yeah. is not accepted by everyone uh, however it is uh, respectable and uh, we think we see it in play in many of the what is commonly referred to as the paranormal it's really not a an accurate term because it's really quite normal and one of the phenomena we seem to notice at times and that I have noticed over you know 42 years of working in the field is that if what we seem to see is correct, then we might be our own guardian angels, you know, versions of ourselves from worlds with different laws of physics, uh, you know, and all the same thing, uh, perhaps uh, what, what, what the mediums and psychics, uh, whom we don't think very highly of usually, might call more enlightened lives or whatever term you want to use that never quite does it. Uh, we might yeah. be helping ourselves in situations mm-hmm. like this, uh, yeah. Or, or, yeah. or there might be ancestors or, or other other concepts. So, mm-hmm. in some ways, perhaps angels, though they may exist on their own, may be a name better applied, perhaps to a phenomenon rather than to a species. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. why don't you think about that? We'll come right back to that. Oh, sure. After a yeah. little break, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 12:40 AM. And onworldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, where it's now snowing. See you in a minute. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got Gold Cuts guests in our daily super quiz, The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. Okay, and we are returning here live on onworldwide.com and OWO1240 AM with our guest John Ronner, and our subject this evening is angels. And we gave John a little bit to think about there, about the uh, notion of perhaps the phenomenon uh, being more uh, in tune with the name than but also being a species, perhaps angels, but that perhaps uh, there are other uh, forms of intervention and guardians uh, whom uh, we have encountered many different species out there, John, and who might be responsible yeah. for some of the stories of angels anyway. But uh, what say you on that subject? Well, I, I, I thought it was interesting that you brought up the many worlds uh, hypothesis or theory in quantum physics and uh, because uh, it, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, because of the anthropic principle, the idea that we live in an uncannily, eerily, uh, human-friendly universe, something mm. that is something that is not disputed, surprisingly, by any, by even the most hardcore skeptic, the laws of nature are such that uh, no scientist will dispute the fact that every human being has won a cosmic lottery to be here. There's no question about it. If the if the force of gravity were just a little bit stronger than it is, or just a little bit weaker. Bam! You don't get a universe that's off a chain of. Re- well, you get a universe, but you don't get one. Or you don't get a human-friendly one, or a universe in which intelligent life like us can evolve. And and the carbon atom has certain uh, uh, bizarre and unusual property, chemical properties to it, uh, that caused Fred Hoyle. Uh, oh, my good friend, Fred. Yes, sir, Fred. <laughs> he, he, I think it was Fred who said that it appeared that, that that when you when you analyze the chemical properties of carbon, it it looked as if it had been 
uh, made from scratch to order. That's exactly uh, what it said. It has, yes, because it has so many unusual properties. And of course, Fred, Fred is a you know has never been you know has been outspoken, and and that's good. Uh, there is, I guess, where, I, where I'm going with this is there are there are thousands upon thousands of anthropic coincidences like this, like water freezing at 32 degrees and boiling at 212, water which is essential for life, happens to be a liquid, unusually speaking, at just the right temperatures that life needs it to be, uh, whereas most other chemicals don't, or, or most other compounds don't have the, those attributes. And the book Big Bang supposedly was just forceful enough to create the kind of universe we have. Anyway, the bottom line is, is uh, nobody disputes that we live in an uncannily human-friendly universe against all odds. And uh, the skeptics, in fact, uh, have been scrambling to, to continue uh, to believe in a random and, and, and accidental universe under these circumstances, as you can imagine. So many of them have taken refuge, have fled to the many worlds hypothesis, uh, and and now are clinging to the idea, and then maybe they're right. Who can say they're wrong? But I, I just think it's interesting. They, well, it they is. Say, yeah, okay, yeah. fine. You've got a, you've got a universe that is impossible to have, virtually impossible. But we live in a much larger multiverse. There are so many alternate universes that you just happen to be living in the one where everything accidentally turned out all right. But imagine the number of universes you'd have to have to have a universe like we're living in right no, now. No, absolutely, That's absolutely. My point. But uh, well, I could see perhaps another show on that subject. But <clears throat> anyway, it's yeah. it's amazing uh, to get back to our poor angels here. Uh, it's amazing how many people take the art literally, John, and assume that angels yeah, are do. people with wings. Yeah, um, that's right. Now, that's right. but from cave art all the way up to the present, where such beings are depicted, any being that flew supernatural or otherwise was generally pictured with wings. Now, this of course might bring up the whole alien thing allegedly anyway so it has always struck me as a little odd that in scriptural references at least outside the book of revelation as best i can remember in in the hebrew bible the new testament the quran mm -hmm. angels yeah. seem to just <clears throat> appear not swoop down as i say other yeah. than in the book of revelation well, uh, they don't right. fly in and land so why are they usually pictured with wings i wonder well first of all it's it's, it's worth noting that originally uh, the ancient uh, Christian artists depicted angels without wings. They didn't have wings hmm. uh, initially in the 300s and 200s A.D. Uh, that was a convention that was later added that became popular and spread. And the That's question true. is, why, why did that happen? Uh, well, the, the conventional explanation that I ran across when I was researching the books was that, well, uh, uh, Artists are always looking for visual symbols to convey an idea that's difficult to convey uh, visually. And uh, the wings were a good symbol for the fact that a spiritual being can move uh, with this, literally with the speed of thought uh, because they operate in a kind of a mental or imaginary world similar to uh, your imagination of you know you and I we can we can go from you know you can go from your studio to the edge of the universe in your in your mind. Uh, and we often do. And so, that's right. So the wings were just a, an artistic convention to symbolize that instantaneous travel of a, of a, of a spiritual being. And in fact, uh, people who've had near-death experiences have reported that, uh, uh, that they could move instantaneously from one place to another. But that really to move was to think. They were identical. If you thought of a place, you were there. If you yeah. didn't think of it, you were not there, and so on. So, uh, and, and all the other accoutrements that we were so, uh, you know, we're so used to when it comes to angels, the harps, the halos, and so on. They all have a similar origin. 
the harps are, were artistic symbols of the unearthly beautiful music that people often report hearing in various transcendental experiences, uh, uh, the so-called music of the spheres mm-hmm. uh, that Pythagoras wrote about in 500 B.C. Uh, the the uh, halos are an attempt to represent the uh, the spiritual body, uh, the perhaps the astral form or the, or the spiritual body of, of an angel, and and also the spiritual body of human beings, and uh, that that uh, that a psychic person uh, uh, may be able to see beyond the contours of the physical form. Sort of the bioelectric field. Uh... That's right, exactly. Yeah. Precise, what it, precise, that's what I was groping for, yes. And, uh, uh, and of course, it's, it's been a, a long-held uh, uh, mystical belief that highly spiritual persons, highly evolved persons, have brighter auras uh, uh, than, than those you know, less developed. And, in fact, uh, the aura often shines brightest around, around the head, and so that's why you have the uh, stylized little ring halo or uh, perhaps a, a golden, uh, two-dimensional golden disc Behind the head of a of a Byzantine saint, uh, all of this is a, is all this goes back to artists trying to symbolize uh, uh, various metaphysical ideas relating to angels, and and uh, so that's that's where it comes from. Well, it certainly makes sense. Uh, of course, yeah. nothing is what it appears to be, especially in the paranormal. So let's go a little deeper, John. Uh, we feel that the origins of both religion and science can be found in what is commonly called the paranormal. I had the unexplained never presented itself to our remote ancestors, science might never have developed in an attempt to answer the questions that were raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And had the same ancestors never encountered what they considered supernatural beings, the shaman might never have developed, and with it, religion. Could angels, or at least what we think of as angels, be at least partially responsible for all that? I think uh, I think uh, angels, like all metaphysical phenomena, you know, beg questions, like you were saying a moment ago, and and uh, questions that that beg to be answered often are answered, or at least people are moving toward getting an answer to them. So, uh, uh, I I I I do agree wholeheartedly uh, that it, it is the unknown that causes us. You know, uh, what, what was it? What was the poem? Uh, the poet that said, "All oh, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp." Was it Browning? Or what's a heaven for? In other words, we uh, we have a natural tendency as human beings to reach out uh, toward things and and try to grasp them if we can, and mm. uh, we want to answer questions. So I think the paranormal has a definitely has a part in that for sure. Okay. Alrighty. So let's flip the coin here, uh, as it were. So in common belief, angels are not all good. I mean, you have the tales of fallen angels and demons like that. And in our own work, we have often encountered uh, what we call parasites, uh, internet dimensional beings that feed on human energy, among other things. Yeah. Uh, but because modern people don't understand the multiverse, or most people don't, uh, we see things from our own limited view. Uh, we think that these beings are demons. So what's your view on the whole fallen angel yeah, fallen angels thing. So. <clears throat> well, yeah, that, there's a obviously, you know, what uh, we have. Uh, uh, how, uh, let me see. A good, a good starting point for this would be uh, uh, the fact that uh, the universe has been in, in steadily evolving for 14 billion years, and uh, metaphysical people have been saying for at least 5,000 years in, in all cultures that. Evil really is a matter of ignorance of the light. It's more like the shadow that you cast. It's, uh, it doesn't have any substance of its own. It appears to be something moving around behind you. But really what it is, it's light that has been blocked. And uh, uh, 
as my take on my take on human evolution is that uh, evolution in general is that uh, the universe is constantly moving toward more light and greater understanding. Uh, but uh, to keep its balance, you know, as Emerson might say, to keep its balance, as the as the light grows brighter and wider, the shadows narrow and become darker. So uh, uh, there, whether or not whether or not uh, malevolent spiritual beings exist that are the counterparts of the angels of light uh, is something that uh, you know hasn't been settled. Uh, I do know that near death experiencers, for example, have. Uh, uh, on their way toward the light going through the tunnel have reported seeing, you know, numberless uh, uh, trapped or earthbound spirits uh, that are unable to ascend or, or move toward the world of light for various reasons, addictions and whatnot. Uh, so some of that is reported. Uh, I do believe, I, I don't, I, I think it would be logical to assume uh, that if uh, if angels of light exist, there may be malevolent beings as well that uh, act as their counterparts. Well, this uh, might and and certainly the, the the writers of the New Testament felt that uh, uh, that they struck a cautionary note and talked about discerning the spirits. That was their concept, which is the idea that not every not every message that comes from the other side may necessarily benefit you, and uh, uh, you need to be able to uh, discriminate. Uh, between what's uh, between something that's happening to you that's helping you and 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 moving you forward and something that may be causing you problems. Well, that, well, that that's yeah. Well, first John, do not trust or do not, do not believe every spirit, as it says in Greek. But the yeah, right. the, the situation that that I'm describing may go back to what we said about other species being interpreted as angels or fallen angels and i'm talking about these parasites again and i can yeah, assure yeah. you that they are real because i've uh, and and i don't believe they're spirits i think they're physical beings that that uh, so they they seem to have almost if you want to i don't know not literally but uh, what would amount to tentacles in a sense that can yeah seem to punch through the boundaries of various parallel worlds and i've actually had physical uh, confront, confrontations with them on two occasions uh, since yeah. 1974, the, the Bridgeport, Connecticut poltergeist case. And yeah. people, I think, in, uh, don't know any other interpretation for them but to say that they are demons or fallen angels. And, and I don't think they're anything mm-hmm. of the kind. I think they're perfectly physical. Uh, I, I, I have felt bodily structure, uh, in particularly in one case when I was trying to protect a little girl in a poltergeist case, and the thing... Mm-hmm. Literally yeah. pushed against me, I pushed against it, and it got around me and threw the girl across the room, and then there were, you know, four other witnesses to this. And yeah. it was just, um, I just think that, that our folklore does the best it can to explain mysteries, and I think th- these are not spiritual sure. beings at all. They, they do tend to, uh, fill the role of these demonic entities that are, that are often, uh, not that there are not fallen angels in the classical sense, I don't know, but. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, but that's that was the reason the for the exploration. Sure, yeah. that was that was the reason for the question. In any case, um, yeah. might I ask you what, what other examples of angel experiences have you collected from your interviews with people? Well, it's it's gone all the way across the board. I mean, uh, I I it, it, the, the different types of angel experiences uh, can uh, uh, I'd say range from uh, the angel appearing as a as a uh, a mortal. Uh, in order to uh, rescue individuals, uh, that's uh, I call that one the mysterious stranger. It's very similar to the uh, TV series Highway to Heaven, in which Michael Landon, you know, used to appear as a as an ordinary human being and 
uh, he would uh, intervene. Oh, I remember to, that. Yeah, to, uh, intervene to benefit people. He kind of dressed casually, looked like a human, and and was sort of reluctant to actually use any supernatural powers. It happened occasionally, but mostly he liked to just facilitate people working out their own problems. Uh, you you know uh, that type of story. A composite of that might be you're alone on a on a road. Your car bro- breaks down. All of a sudden, a pickup truck pulls up, even though you just scanned. The horizon, let's say you're in some flat area, you can see a mile or two in each direction, and there was no sign of a truck when you just looked a second ago, and all of a sudden you, your attention was diverted, and here comes the truck. The guy steps out, looks kind of tall, striking appearance. Uh, uh, the eyes are particularly penetrating. I'm uh, just throwing everything into this story that usually appears uh, in piecemeal in one story or another. And then he goes around to the front of the car, lifts the hood. You're just kind of watching all this stuff in a dreamlike haze, you might say, without questioning the, the logic of any of it. And uh, looks in there and says, oh, the, looks like you need a new distributor cap. I happen to have one here. Let me put it on. And how did he know that? And uh, how did he have the cap? And, how, and he calls you by your name while he's doing it. How did he know that? And then, uh, again, uh, your attention is diverted for a moment, and uh, the truck's gone, and, and uh, you, you see tracks pulling away, and then, and then they stop uh, prematurely and just disappear. <laughs> so uh, th- this, is, this happens quite a bit, and uh, there are other types of, of experiences similar to that. You might experience a, uh, a powerful hunch or gut feeling to do something that seems just incredibly illogical, and, and yet you do. I talked to a woman who had an overpowering feeling to... To, uh, she was about to walk out of a grocery store, and she had $2,000 in cash on her. It was all the, all the money she had. She desperately needed it. And uh, just an over, overpowering impulse to, to not to go through the door, but to go into the ladies' room. And she went in there not even knowing why she was there and staying, not knowing why she was staying until she got the feeling to leave. And when she walked back through the door, there was, uh, there was pandemonium in the, in the grocery store. Um, and a robber had just come through that store through that door that she had abandoned just as she went into the ladies' room. And uh, she was convinced that he would have taken her purse, which had all that money in it. So that's another type of category. And then you've got uh, you, some people hear voices uh, that appear to them or, or uh, reach out to them at critical moments. I've talked to two women who were trapped in a, in a large house in South Florida when Hurricane Andrew came uh, some years back, and uh, uh, they had a night of terror. As, as the uh, hurricane uh, bombarded the house and rattled it and uh, very nearly completely destroyed it. And uh, in the middle of all the hubbub, uh, uh, they were, the, the voice, the voice gave them directions periodically throughout the night. Uh, initially it told them to, to, to abandon a certain part of the house before that part uh, blew up and, and told them to take refuge behind a piano, which they did. And then as the, as the ruckus increased, it, it finally, the, the voice and, and, and debris was flying, or, you know, deadly debris was flying around all over the room. The voice told one of them, put your hand out. And, of course, the, she thought that was totally insane because it was, everything was flying everywhere beyond that piano, but she couldn't resist it. And as soon as she stuck her hand out, uh, a, a tall um, atrium, no. of glass exploded and uh, because of the lack of pressure on outside of it and sh- and and uh i'm sorry excuse me sorry back up uh put your hand out so she did and a cushion hit the hand almost instantly she pulled it back and it just fit the gap between the piano and the wall and then right after that the atrium exploded and uh hundreds of shards began flying down there and that cushion was a pin cushion so it takes a lot of different forms, and, you know, we could go on about this. But let me say one more thing. 
probably the most the most uh, common experience would be synchronicities or meaningful coincidences. Mm-hmm. Chances are most of our listeners, if not all of them, have had uh, meaningful coincidences at one time that uh, that have touched them. I've had all sorts of things happen to me, uh, uh, you know, that we could go into at some point. But uh, uh, it, it runs a gamut, uh, and, and I'd say the coincidences are the most common. Okay. All right, so I, I had a... A uh, quick question. Well, actually, more of a statement, really, uh, to yeah. one of the experiences that you mentioned uh, earlier at the beginning, where um, the guy comes out of nowhere and yeah. is just sort of like the guy, the person that is meeting this guy is sort of enamored. That sort of goes along the lines of what we've heard, like stories of Men in Black, where these people meet these Men in Black and they're just sort of enamored and just sort of do whatever they say. It's it's weird. That's right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Ben. That's important because I've, I've, you helped me remember a, a critical point of that whole story, which I'm sure corresponds to what you you were saying, and that is during this during this uh, this experience, your critical your critical faculties are suspended, much as they are in a dream. Uh, all kinds of things happen in a dream that are completely illogical, but you never question it until the dream's over. And so it is with this experience with the mysterious stranger. Not until the mysterious stranger is gone is your head filled with all of these questions that you should have asked, like, how did you know my name? How did you just happen to have a distributor cap? Where did you come from? <laughs> Et cetera. You know. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And then, then, then you're ready with all the questions, but he's gone. It's too late. Absolutely. John, I wanted to give you a chance before we run out of time to talk about your book and your website and just uh, go for it. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, the website is called angelwatchingme.com. Uh, I've, I have uh, uh, several books that I've written over the years. And uh, back in the early 80s, I, I, uh, I, I felt there was a, a strong need for a book on the subject of angels and angel intervention. And being a newspaper reporter, I, I, I noticed that there just were, were no journalistic, well-researched journalistic treatments out there at the time in, no, in the early 80s. There absolutely was nothing there. I mean, uh, so I just... Uh, since I was already interested in the subject, I just began uh, the, uh, uh, on the side researching it. I ended up with 110 file folders full of notes, and uh, each one of those file folders became a, uh, a section of a chapter. I crammed all that down into about 185 pages, and that became the first book, Do You Have a Guardian Angel? And the title was a question because I didn't want to make any statements. Too many of the books I'd gone through were trying to convert you to one thing or another, or just make make bald statements, and I thought, well, you know, I want to get away from that. I want to just uh, let people have their voices in the book, and and uh, let uh, let uh, let conflicting opinions con- compete with each other in the book, and let the readers make up their own mind if they make up their mind at all. They well, don't have to. That, so that's that was good, the reason yeah. that yeah. And then I I followed up with a few other books. Uh, know Your Angels, which is a listing of uh, angels in folklore, legend, mythology, and the angels of Cokeville, which is a uh, uh, that looks at the different types of angel experiences that are out there, some of which we touched on in this program. And so it's been a lot of fun, and, and my approach throughout has always been to, to pack each book with as much information as possible, but not to proselytize, where people make up their own minds, and all they need is the information. That's what I was trying, trying to get away from, from the previous books. Well, very good. I appreciate good writing. Uh, yeah, you're talking thank you. to a, I spent 10 years in the seminary, then became a newspaper journalist. So You told me that. Yeah, yes, right. that's, that's very interesting that we, yeah. our paths crossed, yes. Now, have you uh, yourself ever had an angel experience? I've had a lot of uh, different types of experiences. I think, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to know where to begin, but the most dramatic one was uh, my... Uh, 
my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was working at that time for a small newspaper in Alabama, and I, I, I was on my way to a precinct to get some vote totals. That's what it was. And I carelessly looked down at my radio to adjust it, and when I looked back up, a car had slammed its brakes on right in front of me, <sighs> and there was no way to avoid an absolutely disastrous uh, rear-end collision other than to just uh, other than take the steering wheel and as as abruptly as I could and sharply as I could turn it to the right and so I just did everything. and the, the car uh, swerved um, off the road and went onto uh, onto the uh, uh, shoulder of the road and uh, it was it was speak by this time it was it kind of half spun out of control so that for a few minutes there uh, it seemed like a few minutes it's probably only a few seconds. Um, it was like time and space just slowed down and suspended for me, and and the car was moving sideways along the shoulder. That's not a good thing. No. Uh, <laughs> when your car is moving sideways instead of straight, and I uh, had no idea if there was a huge tree or anything uh, that I was about to slam into or what was going to happen next. And I just remember, kind of, I, I just uh, and really eerie calm came over me. Not eerie. It was just a pleasant calm, and I just said, "Well, uh, whatever happens, uh, you're going to decide this." And uh, the minute I had that thought, instantly the car shot right back into the highway and uh, began fishtailing, I guess, uh, I, for want of a better term. And I managed to get the steering wheel under control. Uh, but I do remember one of the, before I made that comment, the, the, the thought that immediately preceded that was I was thinking about Jeannie being pregnant with our first child. Oh, boy. And I was thinking, I, I can't exit at this point. <laughs> it wasn't a selfish thought. I just thought I, it's not appropriate for me to exit at this point, you know, that mm -hmm. bam, right there. So I don't know if, you know, how I would relate that to something. I've have had, I've had had more telling experiences of, uh, uh, pretty powerful synchronicities, but I've been touched enough to, let me put it. Let me put it this way. People always ask me. You know, they used to ask me when I was a reporter. Well, John, what do you think? Do you think he's guilty or innocent? Because I had my stories balanced so much. And then when I wrote the books, they'd ask me, John, what do you think? Do you do you believe this or not? Well, my feeling is that there is a strong circumstantial evidence for the existence of a of an unseen reality, and it's getting stronger by the year and by the decade. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're at the point where we have a smoking gun yet, or. Uh, I don't think we're at the point where the lawyers would say we have, we have shown it beyond a reasonable doubt. But I do agree with that we've reached at least the point where the lawyers would say that we are we have a preponderance of the evidence, which is enough to convict in a civil case, but not necessarily enough to convict in a criminal case. Of course, others might disagree with me. They think we've gone further than that. But I, I'm, I, I'd say there's definitely a preponderance of the evidence, and that preponderance is, is growing uh, every year. Uh, uh, and science itself is supplying uh, the additional evidence, and that's one reason for the. That's one reason why we had Sagan and and uh, uh, Isaac Asimov and and others as uh, materialists essentially in the 70s. But today we have much more. Uh, and I don't, I don't. I'm not calling them closed-minded at all. They, that was just their honest, sincere belief. But I'm saying today, among the intellectual elite, you have many more people who are open to the idea of a spiritual reality. And that's because of the science that's changing. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think certainly that. Uh, well, yeah, quantum physics is quantum flipping physics everything has, on its head, shaking everybody, yeah. shaking everybody up, and uh, also the anthropic principle, the guy hypothesis. Many things have come along to to give people pause, so that you don't get that automatic brush off that you used to decades ago. Well, we refer to the the super skeptics because you know, everyone you need to be skeptical in in everyday life. Yeah, there's, and there's a healthy this, skepticism because it's uh, what's the word? Well, it's an instinct. Yeah, well, super yeah. skeptics are are, uh, and, I, and 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 I hope nobody out there in Radio Land is going to get mad at me because I'm not talking about the normal skeptics who I respect, by the way. Oh, I, I was but too. The, yeah. But the super skeptics, uh, they are almost like uh, fundamentalists. They that, are. It, it's it's they a religious a, approach. Yeah, and and fundamentalism is by no means uh, restricted to religion. You see it everywhere. You see it in politics. You see it everywhere you look. Very true. And uh, the super skeptics, I'd say, have uh, have turned it almost into a, a, a religion. There's a need to believe there, uh, and uh, it's. Uh, but uh, uh, I I I actually welcome the healthy skeptics and, and hope that they think we're healthy too. Very much uh, so. Because it makes for a good debate, and I always like to get calls from them too because it's, sure. uh, it stimulates the program. Yeah. Well, we've had um, um, a number of encounters with, with the super skeptics, as I say. I, I, I tend to think that they are the last holdouts of, a, of an almost discredited scientific materialism of the kind you were describing earlier in the they, show. They really, I, I agree with that because I think that I think it's kind of surprising when you take a look at where the giant intellects are now. I'd say the giant intellects have moved at least into an open-minded stage. And I would I'm sure say so. There are, yeah. uh, and, and, and much of the time, uh, the, the, uh, you know, uh, you have, you have a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, the extreme skeptics are coming from fields that I can see might, uh, maybe prejudice them to, to, uh, uh, to want to discredit the paranormal. There's a lot in the paranormal that discredit. There's a lot of quackery and fakery oh, good and, and so yes. on out there. Yeah. And uh, But uh, I know my, from from uh, not only my own personal experience, but uh, my sister, for example, has uh, has had uh, psychic ability uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, one time she saw the uh, the spirit of a, of a uh, deceased aunt appearing to her, giving her message. One time... In fact, one time we were with a relative who was a skeptic, and just for fun, this is many, many years ago when I was in my 20s, and Susan was a newlywed, and I said, Susan, let's see if you can actually, I said, you're always having these experiences spontaneously, let's see if you can actually produce something here. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, I had no idea, it was just almost like a parlor game. And I had her, her uh, the skeptical relative sit next to me, and on one side of the room, and I had Susan on the other side of the room. Now, I know I was not collaborating with Susan. I can guarantee you that. I can't prove it to the skeptics. They're going to say, well, you know, John and Susan were just uh, uh, conspiring with one another. But I can tell you I was not. Wow. And and I took a sheet of paper out, and I drew a tree, because I figured, well, how could she possibly ever just think randomly of a tree? It could be any of hundreds of thousands, millions of things. So I just picked tree. And I lettered uh, T-R-E-E under it, and then I closed my eyes, and I showed the picture to the skeptical relative, and I said, okay, we're going pre- to have a little experiment here. So I closed my eyes, and I started meditating on the, on the image and also saying it at the same time with my mind's voice. Well, I, all I can tell you, you know, Paul and Ben, is that Susan thought about it for a little bit, and then she said, is it a tree? 
<laughs> well, John, with that, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop you. We're flat out of time. But oh, are we? I'm thank you for a great yeah. conversation. And oh, we'll be, yeah. We'll be in touch. enjoyed it. All right. See you now. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay, folks. Uh, many thanks to our producer, Ben himself. And next week, January 28th, we welcome Dr. Michael S. Heiser, expert on the ancient Near East, for a discussion of UFOs in the Bible. And in our regular CBS edition on January 27th, we will have a very exciting show planned where we will return to the Rendlesham Forest UFO case and talk with some local witnesses who have never been heard from and offering some new information and that has never been presented before. And we leave you this evening with some advice from Gautama the Buddha himself. It is better to conquer yourself than to win a thousand battles. Then the victory is yours. It cannot be taken from you, not by angels or by demons, heaven or hell, unquote. All right, so thanks for sailing with us on our very interesting and great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.